Uh, as we continue in worship, please remain standing with me as we uh, turn to the, God's Word, the book of Ephesians. To me, though I am the very least of all these saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the Church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This week marks the third week of our sermon series, Why Church? In week one, Pastor David and Steve Morosi showed us from the Gospels how Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. They talked about us being on a search and rescue mission and how we share the answer to the ultimate question, who is Jesus? Two weeks ago, John Dobbs and Rick Davis showed us from the book of Acts that the church is God's design for us to grow in Christ and to help others grow in Christ, and that God encourages us and equips us for that mission. This week, we continue to see what God's Word says about His chosen institution, the church, in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, a large town on the western shore of what is now Turkey, during his third missionary journey. So this is approximately 53 to 56 A.D., he knew many of the Ephesians, therefore, very well. And he most likely wrote this letter when he was imprisoned in Rome a few years later, around 60 AD. Paul's mission was to proclaim God's amazing plan. And he started this passage in verse 8 by immediately putting himself in a place of humility. In that verse, Paul called himself the least of all the Lord's people. And what a difference from our natural tendency to champion ourselves. Society would tell us to speak up for yourself. Don't let anyone put you down. But Paul counters that tendency completely by putting himself in the place of less than the least. Why does he do this? It's because he's overwhelmed with the honor of what he has to say and the amazing project that he's part of. All of us want to be part of something worthwhile to be part of a family or a team that makes a difference in the world, that delivers real value. And Paul knew 
that he had ended up in something like that through no merit of his own, and he can't stop pinching himself. In religious terms, that's what we call grace. And the message that he has to offer is also a gift. It's also grace. Because Paul had been chosen to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. In Paul's world at that time, the Jews were a group of people who'd been given a special relationship with God. That had also been a gift rather than anything that they earned or deserved, but they sometimes tended to forget that. And in talking about Gentiles, Paul meant all the other people of the world, all the non-Jews. But now God was opening this special relationship of love to them as well. Jesus came to make salvation available to all people, both Jews and Gentiles. In verse 9, Paul called this message a mystery, which for ages was kept hidden by God, the creator of all things. It was something that we couldn't have figured out or expected, but it wasn't something new or desperate, a sort of a, a Hail Mary pass to get God out of a rough situation when the Jews weren't getting it right. For reasons of his own, God kept it hidden throughout history until this moment when he graciously selected Paul to deliver it. And that message was that the church's mission is to show God's glory. Paul made an amazing statement in verse 10 that's worth looking at a little more carefully. He says, the church is the vessel that God decided to use to show his manifold wise plan to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So first, what is manifold? Well, that word means diverse or many. It can be complex or multi-sided. It means his wisdom is wider and bigger than any wisdom ever. And who are the groups that are mentioned in verse 10? Most scholars believe these are angelic beings. That includes both those loyal to God and the fallen enemies of God and humans. By making blessings available to the Gentiles along with the Jews, God illustrates to these spiritual powers that he is more wise and more powerful than anything. John Piper has a quote about this passage, and I'll read it to you. Piper says, The target for the church is to demonstrate to the evil powers of the cosmos that God has been wise in sending his son to die, that we might have hope and be unified in one body, the church. So therefore, when we fail to live in hope and maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, we send this signal throughout the galaxies. Listen to this. God's purpose is failing. He was not wise. He was foolish. Now, that's a daunting perspective on the importance of church. God decided to use church as a vehicle to demonstrate his wisdom, and we have the opportunity to act in a way that accomplishes his purpose and glorifies him. So what is glory anyway? What does it mean to give God glory? It's not just to say nice things about him. God's glory is his character, his style, 
his personality, who he is. Giving God's glory, therefore, means to to reflect that nature as we live by the transforming power of Jesus. This is what the church is meant to do. But can people really change? Can we lay down old wounds, old attitudes, old prejudices? Sometimes we say we can't, we can't forgive, we can't let go. And in a sense, that's true. It's not in our nature. But God's Spirit at work in us can change us, can give us the love for others that we can't muster on our own. And consider what happens when we hold on to hate and unforgiveness. We give space for evil to enter our lives. And this idea of Gentiles and Jews, former enemies, former insiders versus outsiders, all serving God together in the church is a testimony to his power. Satan, our enemy, he seeks to divide. He hates unity. And when we create division in the church, that sin goes beyond just injuring another person. We insult our full of grace, loving, wise God. Paul knew it was critical to the spread of God's message that the Ephesian believers demonstrated changed lives so that they could love not only one another, but then reach out to the rest of the world. How was that going to be possible? Paul knew what to do. He prayed. In verse 14, Paul told them that he was turning to God, kneeling humbly before God. But he did so in confidence, believing that God was a loving, heavenly Father. This is the unique perspective about God that Paul learned from the life and teachings of Jesus. The prayers and parables of Jesus called on God as Father. And God is the ultimate Father. Every family derives its name from Him. And we label things to help them make more sense to us. Our food has labels, so we know what's on the inside of a package. A book has title and author, so we know what it's about. Labeling God as Father means He's the example and prototype of what the ultimate Father is meant to be. And in the world of Ephesians, giving someone a family name meant that that person was entitled to all of the rights and privileges and resources of that family. Verses 14 through 17 show all three persons of the Trinity playing a role in the lives of believers. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are themselves a community of love who live together in love. Paul said that he knelt before the Father and asked him to provide strength to believers through the Holy Spirit so that Christ might dwell in their hearts. And I love that word, dwell. Paul didn't ask Christ to pay us a visit or to stop by for a while. He wanted Christ to move in, to stay with us, and to establish a permanent dwelling in our hearts. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So Paul had no hesitation 
In praying this prayer, he was confident that God had the resources available to provide what they needed to fulfill their mission to bring God glory through their changed lives. Paul knew what Jesus can do in the human heart. He knew there was plenty of power to go around through their connection with Jesus. All we need, and then some, is poured out through the Spirit as we yield our lives to our loving Father. When I was in my 20s, I had cats. And the cats that I'm talking about were from the same litter, so they were brothers, they'd been together from birth, and they just loved each other. They slept together, all cuddled up, played together, and were the best of friends until one day, Thanksgiving Day, when I decided that I was going to cook a turkey for my friends. They'd never had turkey, but somehow they knew that this was something very important. I've never heard them wail like they did that day. So being a loving cat parent, I decided that I was going to give them a special piece of the turkey, and I took the giblets, I cooked all of them to make the broth, and I took the turkey neck, and I cut it in half for them. And I put one here for Grayson, and one here for Muslin, and thought, they're going to love this. They started to pounce on the turkey until they looked up and started to growl at each other. And I thought, okay. So I decided I would take one turkey neck and one cat and put them in the southwest corner, (laughs) and one turkey neck and one cat and put them in the northeast corner. This worked for a second until they looked up and said, My brother has a turkey neck. So they dropped their turkey neck, crossed the room, and picked up the other turkey neck. And that was fine until they looked up and said, My brother has my turkey neck. Dropped the turkey neck, crossed the room again, and then realized that their brother had a turkey neck. This was going to go on forever, so we finally had to put them in separate rooms so that they could each enjoy their turkey neck. This is kind of cute in little furry animals, but unfortunately, sometimes we act just the same. We act as if God isn't a loving Father who has all the power and all the love to give us everything that we need. We forget there's enough love to go around. Our hope, our security, is in the inexhaustible love of God our Father. Paul spends some time here talking about the breadth and depth and height of this love. At any one time, we can only see just a very small part of what's available to us in God's presence. It's incomprehensible. It's inconceivable. Paul says we can talk all we want about God's love, but we can't truly know all that that word means. This is a case of the more we know, the more we realize there is to know. And you know, we'll never 
know everything about God's love. Still, we can make a start with what we do know, and we can continue to grow in that knowledge. You know what it's like when there's a book or a a TV show or a movie, and you're enjoying it so much that you hate when it ends? Well, with the story of God's wisdom and God's love, that story never ends. Every scene, every chapter, every episode gets better and better. The more we know of God's love, the more there is to know. And as we see that love for us and for others, we can begin to change. God, growth in love is a sign of God's presence in us. And we need to realize what's at stake when we refuse to let the Holy Spirit change our hearts. God's own reputation is advanced or disgraced by the way we treat each other. The church is not merely a social institution, but it's a key part of God's eternal plan. As an unlikely group of people grows together into Christ's love and likeness, the world can see more of God's glory. There's this corny little poem I remember hearing years ago. Maybe some of you have heard this too. To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. (laughs) We can chuckle at that a bit, but there's a lot of truth in it. And I grew up in churches with people who looked like me, and it was difficult even then. Today the world is a lot more diverse, and our churches need to be as well. If it's Christ's very nature to offer forgiveness and love to all people, the fact that we don't do that is a sign that we aren't letting the Holy Spirit have free reign in our hearts. When we hold on to bitterness, suspicion, envy, gossip, hostility, we aren't reflecting His nature, His glory his image, all that well. In the period of time since Paul's pioneering ministry in the church of Ephesus, the church had grown. Many of the new believers would have had a pagan past. They would have needed help in cultivating a lifestyle that was free from drunkenness, sexual immorality, stealing, bitterness. They had some old habits that were hard to break. The Jews also had some old habits that got in the way sometimes. They treasured their old traditions and tended to look down on anybody who didn't follow them. But how are you going to manage to tie together people with such a variety of backgrounds and habits and viewpoints? And why even bother? Why not just let people gravitate naturally to be with the kind of people who they want to be with? In this letter, Paul argued that that churches couldn't just default to what comes naturally. That just wasn't an option. The church is meant to bring glory to God by living changed lives of love. Humans desperately need to be reconciled to God. But then after that, we desperately need to be reconciled to each other. Paul wrapped up this section of Ephesians with a benediction. Starting in verse 20, he reiterated that God is able to do anything. We cannot begin to put bounds on what he can do. He holds the power to create the universe, to keep our hearts beating, to keep the laws of physics intact, 
to perform any miracle. And that power that no meter or gauge can measure is at work within us. No other religion or deity can make that claim. God, as the Bible describes him, is all-powerful but not distant. He is present and at work in us. And even when we come to know his forgiveness, there is much more to be done in our lives. Changing human hearts to not only love God, but to love others. That is an amazing, incredible accomplishment. That makes the world sit up and take notice. It brings God glory. God doesn't just do a halfway job in his plan to redeem the fallen creation. His ultimate plan is to bring human beings back together under Christ as sons and daughters, taking on the character of their loving, gracious Father. Love and unity in the church is an important issue, not only in Paul's writings, but in James and John and Peter as well. How we treat each other is a sign of how much the Holy Spirit has been at work transforming us into Christ's image, into the people who bear the nature and glory of God. It's a sign to the world of who God is. And God's work in your life will be most significant when you're a part of his church. The church is where the proverbial rubber hits the road. It's where love becomes more than just a pious saying. In the church, you're encountered with real people with real flaws, just like your own. True love between people across race, nationality, and social class, not just superficial tolerance, can only be accomplished by God's power in the human heart. God can do all this and more as the church yields itself to him. Paul prayed that the church should be filled with the fullness of Christ. Christ died and was raised again to create a new humanity, united by faith in him, being changed into the image of Christ, who died for the unlovable. And that's God's design for the church. It's a key part of God's eternal plan. And it is precisely as an unlikely group of people grows together into Christ's love and likeness that the world can see more of God's glory. What an amazing plan. God had to offer grace and forgiveness to all people and to call forth a group of people who will bear his image into the world, knowing that this is what we are called to. What are some of the implications of this for us here today? Here are just a couple. One of the most famous citizens of Ephesus was the philosopher Heraclitus. Heraclitus lived in Ephesus around 500 B.C. Among his most famous quotes is, the only thing that is constant is change. (laughs) Sometimes that thought is rendered as, all entities move and nothing remains still. Cold things grow hot, a hot thing grows cold. So a glass of water, for example, is always getting warmer or getting cooler. It doesn't stay the same. Or at any point in time, I'm growing closer to another person, or we're becoming more distant. When it comes to unity in the church, that means at any point in time, we are doing things to build unity, 
or we are doing things to make it fractured and less unified. I need to ask myself this question often and assess, what am I doing to make this body, the body of Christ, more unified? It's what God wants. Second, we are meant to be part of a community of people. God hasn't just saved us for a personal, private relationship with himself, even those of us that are introverts. We are meant to be part of his mission, reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. Our faith doesn't just move us upward as saved individuals. It is meant to move us outward as changed individuals. Paul clearly teaches we aren't meant to do it alone, and we can't do it alone. We really do need each other. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, right before today's passage, Paul says that we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So if you aren't committed to a local group of believers, you're missing out. The church was meant to provide a picture of God's glory, his character, his power, his magnificent love throughout history and into eternity. After all, our triune God is in himself a community of love in which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit honor and serve each other. So our future lives are going to be lived in community, in union with God, in union with each other. Our future destiny can begin now. Would you please bow your heads? As we go to God in prayer, we would like you to think about three things. First, God established his church for his children. Jesus Christ lives was crucified, died, and rose again. You can become a child of God by believing in him. Second, if you are not a member of Kenwood Baptist Church, we would love to have you as a part of our family. Will you prayerfully consider joining us? And last, God wants unity in his church. That unity glorifies him. Will you think of a relationship that you can restore? or a way that you can help bring unity to the church? Let us now pray. Thank you, our Lord, for sending your son Jesus to die for us. Thank you for the church, your chosen institution. Please strengthen us through the Holy Spirit. Help us to live in unity. We strive to glorify you, my Lord. In Jesus' perfect name we pray. Amen.